Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But for tonight, we're here for Catherine Carlin. Catherine Carlin's stories have appeared in one story, North American Review, Ziziva, LA Weekly, and the Santa Monica Review, as well as elsewhere. Her work has been selected for the Pushcart Prize and New Stories from the South, and she teaches creative writing and literature at Kansas State University. So new work is her debut short story collection, so please help me welcome Catherine Carlin. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here at Skylight Books. This is my favorite bookstore. And thank you all for coming. It's so nice to see everybody. Okay, let's get serious here. I'm going to read um, the final story in this collection called um, Geography. We noticed the stain in late March. Me, Taurus, and Clark. Thaw. The season of renewal and repair in an oil refinery. Gaskets burst and flanges seep. Ice melts off the pipelines and the ground softens, sucking the soles of our boots. Taurus and I stepped around a blotch in the soil, too dark to be mud. We plumbed its depth with our box wrenches. Naphtha, the refinery mutt, flattened his paws and lowered his snout. Then Taurus did the same thing, got down on his hands and knees and lowered his nose to the earth. What are you doing? I'm recreating Naphtha's actions, he said. My daughter learned this in theater club. It's called method acting. <laughs> his nostrils quivered over the stain. To smell like a dog, you have to behave like a dog. He nodded, stood up, and brush brushed off his coveralls. Crude, he pronounced. I would say, High sulfur, low API by the smell of it. I glanced around at the tanks, brilliant and whitewashed in the cold sun, all of them full of gasoline for the springtime rush. There's no crude around here. Oh, but there is, Taurus said. He turned to climb the fire bank, back to the truck. There's the secret crude line. There's no secret crude line. I didn't want to look gullible. Not that anyone talks about. Taurus got a plastic bottle from the truck bed and went back to scoop up some dirt. He had a face like mashed potatoes squished into a pie pan. <laughs> we were the field operators, so we rode together all shift, pulling samples, reading gauges, spinning the occasional valve. I wished he were handsome like Clark, our dispatcher, but Taurus was funny, and he listened to the jazz station out of Temple, and he taught me how to drive a stick in the company pickup. He came to work in brightly colored tracksuits and flip-flops and lounged around in the break room in his civvies until the foreman made him put on his uniform. 
Since the big layoff, there were only four of us on the crew. Clark, Torres, me, and Kriegel. And Kriegel never did any work, so it was like we had three. Technically, Kriegel is a field man too, but he spent all his time with Clark in the control room doing what he called police work, which was masquerading as a little girl on the web trolling for predators. <laughs> we called the little girl Heidi, which pissed him off. Laugh all you want, he warned us. There's a sickness out there. <laughs> We found Clark at his console, the red and green lights of his control panel blinking on the walls around him. Clark had the posture of a marine, flat and taut, and he walked with a forward pitch like a praying mantis. He spent a few minutes at the start of each shift setting his desk just the way he wanted it, his logbook open to the current date, a row of pencils sharpened to dagger points on the right-hand side, his coffee mug on the upper right, and next to it, a 50cc bottle filled with Maalox. Clark wore a ball cap with the visor pulled low over his eyes, and he kept the radio tuned to the Country Top 40 station. Torres slammed the plastic bottle on Clark's desk blotter. Look at what we found by the casing headline. Been on your knees, looks like, Clark said. Well, I was investigating, just like Heidi over there. Kriegel blurrily glanced up from his computer screen. Go ahead, make fun. Clark sniffed at the bottle. Crude. That's what I was telling her, he meant me. Her in the work context meant me. It's a leak the shape of Maine, I said. I was thinking more like Rhode Island, Taurus said. Taurus was in love with Rhode Island. The only state smaller than Delaware, he said triumphantly. He wanted to go there someday and plant a Delaware state flag. That's the secret crude line, Clark said. I told you, Torres said. Didn't I tell you she didn't believe me? There is a secret crude line. Clark removed his ball cap and put on his hard hat. His coveralls were always spotless. I swear to God, he pressed them. Hold the fort, Kriegel. Kriegel waved at us, his eyes on his monitor. At the leak, we walked around the periphery. Naphtha jogged along the firebank and waited for us with his mouth hung open. Looks like the LP failed, Clark said. What's the LP, I said. The leak preventer. I looked at his face. I could only see the lower half, and the straight line of his mouth was inscrutable. You're kidding me, right? There's no such thing as an LP. Not if it don't prevent leaks, Torres said. I could never tell when they were joking. Nothing was ever called what it was supposed to be, and everyone had a different name. Mine was Little Shit. A little, little bit for the older guys who were too proper to curse in front of women. Taurus's real name was Carnahan, but 15 years earlier, he and a barmaid had been cut out of a smashed up Ford, so we called him Taurus in case a day should go by that he didn't think about it. Clark's logbook had a fancy binding and pages of graph paper, and Clark entered notable events in his small square print, one letter to a box. Discovered leak in the secret crude line, 27 March, he wrote, and then he added, roughly the shape of Maine, one point for me. When Clark told the shift foreman, he replied, come on, Clark, you know there's no secret crude line. The following week, we swung to evening shift. Early evening was Heidi's busiest time, after school and before the predators were busy with their own wives and families. So Kriegel stayed in the pump house and clicked away at his keyboard as we charted the stain's progress. I said it was beginning to look like Illinois. It's a good thing you know geography, Torres said. We'd have no words for it otherwise. 
Clark rubbed his knuckles on his forehead, just under the band of his hard hat. This thing gets any deeper, it'll get in the groundwater. He walked to the pump house to write in his log, leaving the truck with Taurus and me. Naphtha followed him back, sweeping his tail in long, low strokes. Ah, what have we here? Taurus crouched to the ground and poked with his finger. He pulled out a flask-shaped bottle, the color of cobalt, and the size of a hundred-count aspirin jar, embossed with a bunch of grapes. Blue glass. Not very common. In my lifetime, used only for milk of magnesia or noxema. And they both went to plastic decades ago. But this, he said, polishing the bottle on the leg of his civvies, this predates either of them. The leak must have stirred it up to the surface. On the ride back, we listened to Ella Fitzgerald, and Taurus enjoyed it so much, he drove into town just so we could go on listening. We went past the pawn shop and the furniture rental, down a residential street lined by frame houses with sad porches where women lounged with their little girls. When they saw the company truck, some of the women came down from the porches, but then when they saw me in the passenger seat, their faces went dead and they backed away. All the women were white, but many of the little girls were black. They didn't have the fiercely plated cornrows like the children in Chester, bedecked with plastic flowers. Instead, they had untaped, anvil-shaped naturals, proof of their mother's helplessness with black hair. One girl even had a comb still lodged in her curls, as if her mother just got so frustrated with grooming she gave up. We kept driving up a hill to a plateau near the interstate. And Taurus turned the truck around and pointed the grill toward the river, so the sun set behind us and we could watch the refinery lights come on all over the tri-state area. Every night is Christmas, he said. <coughs> the disc jockey had a sleepy voice, and occasionally our walkie-talkies crackled in their holsters, and Clark broke in, asking what was our 20 and calling us home. The DJ put on some West Coast jazz, and Taurus said, that really swings. He propped his elbow out the open window and clicked his wedding ring against the frame in a complicated rhythm. I lived on the West Coast once. You did not? Whole year, San Francisco, after I got out of the Navy. Taurus was full of surprises like that. Did you like it? Loved it. When gay men constitute a critical mass, even ugly guys like me have a shot with women. <laughs> You're not ugly. We returned with some hoagies to make Clark forget we'd been AWOL, and we found him glaring at the back of Kriegel's head. He wants to know how to spell cunnilingus, Clark said. <laughs> Two ends, Taurus said, unpacking the sandwiches. Cunnilingus has three ends, Clark corrected. <laughs> well, how would Heidi know about cunnilingus, I asked. Well, yeah, three ends if you count all the syllables, Taurus said. Kriegel spun around. Quit calling her Heidi. He was a big Dutchman, wide in the hips, his face popped like a loofah. Well, what do you call her, I asked. Well, I go by different names, he said. Keeps them on their toes. This is serious work, and I got a deputy's badge to prove it. Hey, I got one of those, Taurus said. I think it was for giving ten bucks to the police boys club. To hell with you, Taurus. He's breaking your stones is all, Clark said. But Taurus was laughing. Yeah, I think my kid got one of them too, genuine plastic. Kriegel jumped up and started toward Taurus. I hadn't seen him on his feet in a while. I'd forgotten how big he was, at least six feet and a good 250. Most of it settled low, like down in an old parka. 
Oh, for God's sake, Kriegel, sit down, Clark said. Go on back to your work. Torres, sit down and eat your hoagie. Leave him the hell alone. You too, little shit. Sit on down. Sit on the hell down. Damn, Kriegel, they're just breaking your stones is all. But Kriegel put on his hard hat and headed outside. And Torres was still laughing when we sat down to eat. Torres and Clark had the same first name, Scott. It wasn't a problem because no one called either of them Scott. I'd been working with him for six months before it even occurred to me Clark had a first name. He was grand enough for a unimoniker like Prince. Clark was Clark, and no one dared to coin a nickname for him, even behind his back. We called Kriegel Hole in the Pocket, because he used to jerk himself off during the graveyard shift when he assumed everyone was asleep. I thought this was an exaggeration till the night I woke up in the red and green light of the control room and noticed the fabric of his coveralls rolling over his lap and his head tilted back. I had to pee, but I kept my face against the desk a good ten minutes before he finally got up to splash himself at the water fountain. After we finished our hoagies, Kriegel returned and threw his hard hat on the blue floor. I didn't find any blue glass, he grumbled. I didn't find any goddamn glass at all. Where there's one, there's more, Torres said. He had a tiny piece of banana pepper stuck in the corner of his lips. My guess is it is an old and ancient trash dump. Every evening, we described the stain for Clark. Texas, Alaska, Mali. Then we dug for glass. Naftha came too, pushing aside the detritus with his paw, as if he were unwrapping birthday presents. The ground was sodden and gave up rose glass, or green, or amber. We spit on the bottles and wiped them and lined them up at the window back at the pump house, so they refracted the fading light. And Clark entered the size and shape of the stain and his log. Aren't they going to do something about it, I asked? Haven't you heard? The secret crude line doesn't exist. So why do you keep entering it in your log? Ever hear cover your ass? We swung on to the graveyard shift. It was too dark to hunt for glass, so after our rounds, Taurus and I rode around in the truck, listening to the overnight radio and looking in the distillation units for anyone who was awake and available for gossip. By two in the morning, most everyone had crawled off to sleep, and Taurus, who never slept, not even at home, returned us to the pump house. We hung out in the break room, which was decorated with some dusty tinsel garlands and a string of jalapeno lights that guys had put up for a Christmas party years before, and no one had bothered to dismantle. Taurus was reading a book about Chernobyl, and I dozed off with my head against the wall. When I woke up, Taurus was gone, and Kriegel was rummaging through the refrigerator. I stamped my foot awake, and he grunted. How long you three think you can get away with this? What? Clark and Taurus, they don't see, he said, crouching at the salad crisper. Contamination. Moral contamination. It's crept into the substrate. I nodded. In Japan, grown women dressed like schoolgirls are prowling the Ginza. This is the level we're dealing with here. He backed away from the fridge with a yogurt in one hand and a head of cabbage in the other. Back during the great shortage, Frankie Popovich wrote down the name and flag of every loaded tanker and demurrage. They were hanging three deep off the docks. The hell they weren't. Fresh from Nigeria, chock full of oil. When the state troopers stopped old Frankie on I-95. Found enough five-gallon gas cans in his trunk to flatten Rehoboth. They can make you disappear. Make no mistake. Turpitude. He marched off with his produce and dairy. The light through the window was pre-dawn and grayish. Somewhere a machine was whirring. 
I walked down the hallway toward the noise and toward a green glow, and I found Clark in the copy room, Xeroxing the pages of his log. Sheets of paper flew off the delivery tray. He scooped them up in fistfuls and shook them at me. Documentation, little shit. We rotated back to the day shift. Clark growled at any boss who happened to come into the pump house. We need a backhoe, he said. We need a pipe fitter. We got a sinkhole in the ground like Zimbabwe. Who likes Zaire, Taurus said from his chair. Clark shot Taurus a look. There is no Zaire. It's the Republic of Congo. <laughs> We're doing our best, Clark, the boss said. Got to go through channels. It's the secret crude line. Oh, come on, Clark, the boss said amiably. You know there's no secret crude line. That's just an old wives' tale. Clark pressed his forearms against the desk blotter. How many old wives do you know sit around and talk about petroleum products? <laughs> Torres picked up his hat, motioned for me to follow him outside. Spring had settled in. A few puffy clouds floated like gondolas. We watched a white rump doe canter across the tank farm with Naptha in pursuit. The doe extended her forehooves and leapt across a pipe manifold and not missing a beat, Naptha leapt after her. Taurus lined up some sample bottles in a carrier, wedged them behind the wheel well. I figured we were going to pull samples from the jet fuel tank, but he turned past security and made a left towards town. Once again, we went down a road with some rickety houses that listed in the shadow of the catalytic cracker, and again, the women straggled out toward the truck and retreated when they saw me. Taurus idled the motor and lowered his window. Sharon, it's me. A woman in embroidered jeans came up alongside him, her hands jammed in her back pockets. Scott, you're here early. Who's your little friend? Taurus looked as if he were surprised to find me in the passenger seat. Oh, her. Well, it's just someone I work with. Good for you. I wasn't sure if she was talking to Taurus or to me. You been having trouble with the tap water? When don't we, Sharon asked, raking her hair from her face. I mean, more than usual. Any discoloration? Funny taste? You know, now that you mention it, the coffee's been a little funky. Ebony! Child approached and pressed her nose against Sharon's thigh. She was holding a nude, headless Barbie. <laughs> Ebony, did you tell me Mrs. Kalinka said something about not drinking the water over there at the school? She nodded, still with her face against her mother's jeans. Did you call the hotline, Torres said? What, and leave another message? Torres scratched his nose with his thumb. I hear you, I hear you. Mind if I get a sample? Suit yourself. Torres left me alone in the trunk truck with the engine running as he and Sharon went into the house. The girl stayed and watched me. She put her lips around the open neck of her doll and blew into it, not taking her eyes off me. Torres trotted down, trotted down the porch steps a few seconds later, holding in front of him a full sample, gingerly, the way you'd hold a urine text, test. Smell! He stuck the bottle's mouth beneath my nose. I sniffed. Sulfur. Venezuelan sour. He punched a cork in it. Only one place that could have come from. When we returned with sandwiches, Kriegel was up and about with excitement. He had a get. A predator had taken the bait and was corresponding with Heidi. Kriegel even said, Heidi, that's how happy he was. You want to take a look? Not especially, Torres said. Come on, little bit. I'll give you a front row seat. He pushed the chair towards me. Everybody's got to have a hobby, Clark said. 
first twisted a sample tag around the bottle of tap water and left it at the corner for the lab men. We went to dig up more glass. Before relief time, Clark summoned me into the control room. When he did that, it meant I was in trouble. I'd forgotten to top off a diesel tank or loop up the centrifugal pumps. I rattled with dread and anticipation. The clerk didn't scold me. Instead, he gestured to his desk and picked up each item, the logbook, the pencils, the mailocks, the coffee cup, even the little gum eraser he kept in the top left corner. Around each, he had scribed an ink outline on the blotter so it looked like a crime scene. See this, he asked. You see this? You see this? You see this over here? You see this? Yes. You see where everything goes, right? You see it was all here. You see this, Amelia? My neck tingled. I had only heard him use my real name once before. It was after I overloaded a propylene tank car. And he was so angry, I thought my cartilage would melt. I need you to see this, in case someone says these things were never here. Well, why would somebody say that? Stranger things have happened, little shit. Stranger things have happened. Taurus was researching our medicine bottles. Successive waves of freed blacks, Swedenborgs, and Moravians had farmed this patch before the company cleared them out in 1910. All that was left of them was their garbage. This leak must have sunk pretty deep to excavate this mother load, Taurus said. He called the lab to follow up on the tap water sample. The lab told him it was lost. When we went for our evening rounds, Naphtha did not rise to join us. He was lying in his usual spot next to his water bowl outside the pump house door, with a paw thrown in front of his eyes to shield him from the light. When we came back, he was in the same spot. We knelt beside him. Taurus took, shook off his neoprene glove and ran his fingers over the dog's ribs. Hey, boy. Hey, good boy, he said. Clark found a collapsed diebold carton in the stockroom that was about the right size. He propped it open and taped down the flaps to make a crate for Naphtha, and we put him in the back of his truck to take his body home. Taurus asked me to stop for a drink after work, which was the custom when a co-worker died on shift, and he said Naphtha was as loyal as any and brighter than most, so we met in the parking lot at relief time. Clark coming, I asked. Clark don't stop. I figured since he was into jazz and California, Taurus might take me someplace swanky, but we ended up in his truck, drinking beer and watching the river traffic in the night. We won't be around long, he said. Life is short, I agreed. No, that's not what I mean. He took a swig. We were listening to a song that pried open my chest like a rib spreader. What is this? It's Billy Holiday. Listen, I think you and me should run off together before the shit hits the fan. Go to Rhode Island. <laughs> Rhode Island? You want to go to California? I'll take you. I mean, we get along. We already know that from working together. Getting along's the hardest part. I watched the lights of the dredger float upstream toward the Platte Bridge. I don't want to run off with Taurus, but I wouldn't have minded spending the rest of my life sitting in his truck, tossing back beers and listening to this music. You wait for Clark, you're going to wait forever. He's a family man. I put my foot on the dashboard. You're a family man, Taurus. Nominally, nominally. Taurus called his wife the ball and chain, even though at one time she must have had a light touch, an activity she enjoyed. And you with Taurus, I'd be the ball and chain too. Okay, he said, turning the ignition. Don't go with me, but I recommend you go soon and as far as you can. If you stick around here, 
cover your ass. He did not come to work the next day. I did my rounds by myself, without Taurus or Naphtha. It was no fun describing the lake. When I went to the control room to give Clark my readings, the place was silent. No country music, no shift bosses. Even Kriegel was not at his usual place by the computer. Just Clark at his desk. Was something missing? His hat, maybe? No, his hat was on his head. And I realized it was his desk set up. The log, the pencils, the coffee cup, the maylocks, they'd all disappeared. The bladder on which Clark had carefully traced the tools of his trade, that was gone too. That's a fine howdy-do, Clark said, nodding at his blank desk. Where's your stuff? I can only speculate. I pulled a chair up next to him. I sat in Taurus's truck last night and drank beer with him, I blurted. I'd never said anything personal to Clark before, but I thought my whereabouts might be relevant somehow. Well, he looked at where his Malux used to be, and you're not the first woman to do so. It made me feel like I disappointed him. He asked me to run off with him. I studied Clark's face for a reaction, but he just seemed to recede deeper into the shade of his ball cap. I guess he was kidding, I added. Oh, probably not. You're going to see some unusual things happening here, little shit. He told me to cover my ass. Clark's chin dipped to his chest, and when he lifted it, he said, I think that's a good idea. He did not ask me to run off to Rhode Island with him. Security came at lunch. They took me in one truck and Clark in the other. Two of them in the front and me in the back seat. As we drove, I listened to a pop song on the radio, and about the third time the girl singer said, you saved me, I understood it wasn't a pop song at all. It was a Christian song that sounded like a pop song, which depressed me. <laughs> the security guards took me to a windowless conference room. I sat on an oval table. On the wall hung a poster with a purplish photograph of a man and a woman holding hands on the beach and nuzzling, and underneath in a script font, productivity. <laughs> After a few minutes, five men entered the room. I knew one of the men, our unit supervisor, and one was my unit re union rep. The two others I'd seen on occasion walk in manifolds with their hard hats cocked back on their heads and their neckties flapping in the breeze. One was new to me, and it was clear from where he sat and how the others leaned toward him that he was the biggest boss in the room. He set a loose-leaf binder on the desk and turned the pages slowly. Finally, he said, Amelia, is it? They call me little shit. Good-natured laughter among them, and then he continued, I think we better stick with Amelia. Amelia, we've been over to the tank farm, and it looks like we've got a problem there. You know, your first job, first and foremost, is safety. Your safety, ours, and the community's. That's our mission. We might have avoided some serious trouble if you'd kept that in mind. Here the union man intervened. You understand, Les, Amelia's the junior man on the shift. She's just following the example of the others, and from everything I hear, she's a good little worker, among the women, one of the best. The chief guy nodded. Everything I've heard confirms that. There's been some shenanigans here, and you have the opportunity now to put things right. I like that word, shenanigans. Made me think of Irish dancers. Well, there's no shenanigans. Clark's been reporting the leak for weeks. It's in the secret crew line. The chief guy tapped his pen on his lips. He was dismayed. 
You understand in a refinery how things get passed down, rumors, legends, and the fact is there is no secret crude line. Yeah, but there is, and it's got a stain like Kazakhstan. We need your cooperation, the top boss said. The company will stand behind our men and our ladies. This was supposed to be a joke, but I didn't laugh. I stared at the phony grain of the conference table and thought how much it resembled the eddies of gasoline. What does Clark say? I asked. I didn't have to look up to know they were exchanging glances. Let's let Clark worry about Clark and Amelia worry about Amelia, the union man said. And it was at that moment I knew Clark was in another conference room, just like the one I was in, with five other guys who looked a lot like these five guys. It's tough for women out in the field, the head boss said, and the company is 100% behind diversity and general concurrence and throat clearing. We know sometimes a pat on the back is not just a pat on the back. Sometimes it's unwelcome. If you don't want it, it's unwelcome. My brain was spinning. Are we still talking about the crude leak? As I said, your safety is our mission. He smiled at me very sadly, and I wanted to tell him it was all right, whatever was troubling him. Has Mr. Clark ever acted in an untoward manner? Untoward? It's important we establish a pattern. A pattern? Of what? She's going to see it on the 6 o'clock news anyway, the union man said. Clark's down at the sheriff's. It seems, the big boss said, clearing his throat, has been out looking for young girls on the internet. I burst out la laughing. No, that's Pocket. Kriegel. Kriegel does that. He nodded. The way he'd nodded a stutterer to get her to hurry up. It was Mr. Kriegel who uncovered this. No, no, no way. I was still laughing. Look, if he did, you know... It's what they call breaking stones. Clark was just trying to keep Kriegel busy so he'd stay the hell out of the field. As soon as I said that, the five of them rolled their chairs to the table and jotted something on their clipboards. Uh, but I don't know that he did anything. No, I decided. That's not his style. He's not a prankster, not Clark. I was about to add, not like Taurus. But I decided to shut up. He did have motivation, though. Is this what you're saying? Well, as a joke, the blood drained from my head, and the space in front of me cracked into fractals. No, I mean, no, there's no motivation. The man sitting closest to me put his hand on mine. This isn't evidence, just corroboration. The sheriff will find all the evidence he needs at Clark's house. So they found a way to his house. I knew exactly what they would find. I'd pictured it many times. A spotless kitchen with a formica countertops, a portable CD player, and Clark's Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw discs, a refrigerator full of ballpark franks and one-liter bottles of Dr. Pepper, his daughters in the upstairs bathroom applying lip gloss and arguing over a blouse, naphtha in the meat freezer, copies of the pages of Clark's log. After the meeting, the same security guards rode me back to the pump house, and the first thing I did was gather up the bottles we had found at the leak. By now, Taurus was somewhere on the New Jersey turnpike close to New York with the windows cranked down and the hot mist rolling off the Jersey refineries. I hope he picked up some good jazz stations, clear up to Newport, and that they were playing Dave Brubeck, his favorite, and that any thoughts of country-shaped stains and dead dogs and little girls with headless dolls flew out the back of his truck.
I took the bottles to my house, and I lined them up at the kitchen window. Green, rose, amber, blue. Those men were here. Now they're gone. I think I know you know a lot of these people, but I thought the question. Yes. Any questions? Brian? Well, I do. I mean, just because it's a debut collection, right? Did you also write, do you also write, that's a pretty long story before, so do you write, have you ever tried to write a novel or written a novel? Yes. Yes. I have written an album, but it's not published yet. <laughs> so, not, not metal. <laughs> My novel is about American communists, um, th three generations of, of American communists. So, I mean, where is this? Uh, in New York, and yeah. This is a gorgeous. Where did, where did this come from? It, it, it is actually from the Getty public domain photo, you know, their file photos from the Getty collection. Yeah. And uh, as I've told somebody who asked me, those are not my hands and, <laughs> and not my boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly contemporary. Well, yeah, I think that the way they they processed it kind of gave it that antique look. I, I believe I'm not exactly sure, but the um, the art the artist who did that cover had you know did some research. They actually I had recommended. I, I was really happy with that art. I recommended. Um, uh, if you're familiar with the artist Jacob Lawrence, who's an African-American artist who actually lived in Kansas for a while, and um, I was at, a, at the Kansas City Museum, and he did a lot of, um, well, he did a lot of paintings of working people, but he did some of working women, like women carpenters and stuff like that, and I thought it'd be very cool to use that for the cover art, and that was my suggestion. But this was, for one thing, it's public domain, so I think it was free for them to use. But also, I mean, there's something... I actually think this was a better choice, you know, because I think there is something about that image that um, uh, does a lot for the title, because it almost looks like her hands are in prayer, you know, and it, it, it evokes the title very well. So I was, I was just delighted when they came up with that. Can you tell us about how you came up with the title? Send me work. Ah! <laughs> you know the answer to that, don't you? Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so this is from, but there's another story in it called Send Me Work, and um, it's actually a misconstrued lyric. And it, this is actually a lyric that I misconstrued when, um, uh, uh, okay, this is a really depressing story. I was going through kind of uh, a difficult period in my life, and I wasn't working, and I thought, you know, <sighs> You know, it's like I had a job. If I had a job, if I had a boyfriend, if I had a better apartment, my life would be so great. And I used to drive around listening to very cheery record, um, Bruce Springsteen's The River, which is like, you know, yeah, just the shot of <laughs> cheer that you need. And, and there's a song on it um, where he says, uh, when I first lost you, honey, sometimes I think I lost my guts too, and I wish God would send me word, get me, get, get, 
I wish God would send me word, give me something I'm afraid to lose. But I kept thinking, of, I wish God would send me work because I needed a job. So, you know, that, that kind of determines how you hear things. I kept hearing it as, I wish God would send me work, give me something I'm afraid to do. And, you know, I thought if I had, you know, some kind of challenging job, then this rough patch of my life would be over. Um, so th that has stuck with me for years, and I just used it as the title for this. So, thanks. Good question. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have another question about the content and stuff. Um, I'm always really excited to read fiction that deals with work, working class folks, and literature ends up being like set university or something. Yeah. So, my question is, um, how did you decide to write about this subject matter and titles together? Yeah, I started out, because um, I used to work in an oil refinery, and um, one thing about working in refineries is you, there was some hard work, but there's, there's a lot of downtime, you know, there's a lot of time, as you can see from this, you know, a lot of time for banter and eating and, you know, hanging out, because it's sort of, you're between, you know, trips out to do things. Um, and I used to read a lot in the refinery. I mean, I just, I just read and read and read and read. And uh, I remember I was, I was reading Henry James and all things, and I was realized, like, Nobody in this book is working. <laughs> you know? And I was like looking around at, you know, all the equipment around me and the guys in the hard hats. And, you know, I was like, it, there was such a disconnect between what I was reading and this life that I was living. And I thought that's so bizarre because work was such, is, I mean, work's such an important part of our life. It's not just that we spend 40 hours a week working. Generally, we spend more than that. Most of us do. And then, you know, when we're not there, we're thinking about it, or we're recovering, or we're dreading it. And, and, and the, the big thing, too, was, you know, I fostered such strong relationships with my coworkers, really strong relationships. And, um, that, that kind of relationship I never saw represented much, you know? Um, and kind of another theme among all these stories, besides the theme of work, is uh, um, they're all stories about non-sexual relationships between men and women, which also is something I don't see represented much. You know, these aren't romantic relationships. They're, they're work relationships. Or there's, in the different stories, there's other kinds of relationships between men and women, but I, I never wanted them to be love stories. Um, so I started, you know, when I did leave the refinery and started getting serious about writing, I, you know, started writing about refinery life, but then I looked around and realized there's all kinds of work situations that I didn't see represented much. So that's when I got the idea of, you know, tying together a whole collection of work-related stories, and particularly women at work, which, which I thought was particularly underrepresented. So, so that's how I came up with that. Um, while you were having that experience, like, did you have the thought at the time, like, I have to write about this someday, or did it just like all come later? In a very abstract way, because I wasn't really writing at the time. But you know, like, like things. You know, I wish 
I had kept better notes because, you know, things would happen and I'd think like, oh, this is so... I mean, actually, what I was thinking was like, this would make such a cool movie, you know, because I wasn't thinking in terms of writing, you know. Um, and then when I did start writing, it was very natural for me to fall on, on those experiences. But then, you know, the other thing and, and you know, there's so many writers here, I think you've all had this experience where you realize that the actual life experience is probably not the best story because it's not dramatic enough, you know? Um, I mean, and, and that's where that's where the imagination comes in, you know, that you impose that. So, so that, like, the background does come from that experience. But when I tried to actually write about events that happened, they weren't all that dramatic, really. You know, they were funny, but, you know, that's the point, so. What sort of fictional models did you use? So there was the, the life experience, which, what sort of, yeah, what kind of fiction kind of fed into these... Like who influenced me in terms of fiction? Um, that's a good question. I don't. I wasn't really reading other work-related stuff as a model. I mean, you know, the the short story writers who I feel influenced me most are like Grace Paley and Deborah Eisenberg and. Um, um, Alice Monroe, but you know they're mostly domestic writers. You know, that's so I I. Don't, I can't think of some. I've read some recently, actually, f since I finished writing this, you know, some working class like Knock'em Stiff, uh, uh, um, and other kind of, and Philip Meyer, uh, more working class kind of based authors. But I just think what they're doing is so different than what I wanted to do. And I, I think it's mostly a gender thing, you know, because I really... I'm interested about women in these situations, and their stuff is much, just very masculine, you know. And and so it didn't really directly influence. I'm interested in what they're doing, and I think they're really good. But uh, I felt much more influenced by actually sort of more traditional domestic women writers in in terms of how I was writing my stories. So I have a question about the shape. I mean, we were talking about this as the final story. Yeah. And it's interesting because the story you read at USC you were saying was the ending and, and that this one maybe gave it a different flavor. And I, I thought you were saying that it ended on a, it, it was sort of like poetry. Anyway, I'd like to hear you talk. Because I was expecting it to be really light. Mm, oh. And, yeah. and, it, and then, so first of all, I just want to hear about the process of writing the story. But then I'm also curious because this was your first time reading it. Yeah. This is my first time reading it, and this was the last story I wrote for the collection. I, I was telling Rebecca, uh, what happened was Northwestern Review collected this, this uh, accepted this collection conditionally. They wanted one more story. Um, and I didn't have another story. <laughs> so, so I tried to like, like pass off some really crappy things that I wrote very early in my grad school career. Like, oh, they're not even going to look at it, right? They just want to fill up pages. And my agent said, like, no, you can't send that along to them. So I, well, so I thought, okay, I'll write something new. So I wrote this story in three weeks. Now, uh, I wrote this in the summer of 2009. Uh, and you might, uh, was it two, yeah, I wrote this in the summer of 2009. Uh, 
you might remember what was going on in the summer of 2009, which was the BP oil spill. And that was like, so every day I'd, I'd get up to write, and every day, you know, my days began with the, the pro progress report of how many uh, millions of gallons of oil were being spilled into the Gulf of Mexico. And it was haunting me. So, of course, that seeped into into the writing of the story. Um, it actually began as a, a bit lighter story, and you, I think you might be able to tell it where the tone was going, because I was just feeling more and more oppressed by what was happening with BP. Um, and, you know, even though I didn't know the particulars of what really happened at BP, there was one thing, having worked for oil companies for years and years and years myself, I knew these mothers were liars, you know? I knew that. I knew that, and I knew that they would do anything they could to frame this spill on the lowest ranked people they possibly could, because that's the way they operate. Um, you know, I, and, and that to me was just like a no-brainer. I had absolutely no question about that. Um, and you know, I was very upset because 13 oil workers died, and the last line of the story, these men were here and now they're gone, was really, you know, I was thinking about the, the men who were killed in the BP explosion when I wrote that. Um, so I, I wrote this story. Originally, I had submitted the collection minus the story, and I finished with the story I read at USC, Seven Reasons, which is a very dark story about uh, a woman co considering suicide, but at the end of the story, she decides to go at least another day. And I thought, okay, so you know, you go through hell. You know, this the, the collection, I arranged the stories, so I thought they got darker, 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 darker. You go through hell, and then there's redemption at the end. Um, and I decided to close with this one after uh, I wrote it, because it was also set in a refinery, as was the first story. And because it was uh, reflecting what was going on at BP and a little more up to date, I thought that those two stories kind of bookended the collection very well of, you know, a kind of arc of um, what's happening to working people in America. And that's what I wanted to show. So that's, that, that, that kind of determined my decision to do that. Are any of the stories in this book particularly close to your heart? Um, yeah, yeah, there are. Uh, there, uh, yes, there are. There, there's, there's a couple. Um, the second story, the Severac Sound, which, uh, when it was initially published, there was um, there was a long and, and, and kind of messy story about how it came to be published, and, and the upshot of it was the, the journal that it was published in. They were kind of mad at me. And so they never, they didn't do much to get it out there. And, and I'm, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so glad this book came out is like, you know, oh, it has a second life. <laughs> I'm so happy. And um, that story's about an oboist, and my best friend is an oboist, and I've traveled uh, around the world with him and watching him make reads and listening to him practice. And um, uh, I was, all of a sudden, I, the, all this information that I'd been absorbing for him without even trying, you know, just because the proximity, um, I was able to use in a story, and uh, and so that was that that was very that story is particularly dear to my heart. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I'm glad I got that off my chest. <laughs> okay, let's hang out. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.